I'm Captain Kirk. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present the winners of the 74th Annual Hunger Games. We want them in black. I'm the doctor, by the way. What's your name? Rose. Nice to meet you, Rose. Run for your life. My name is Optimus Prime. I am the Futus of Borg. Resistance is futile. Yes, a Jedi's trick flows from the Force. But beware of the dark side. It's got a nice ring to it. I mean, it's not technically accurate. It's a gold titanium alloy. I'm sorry, David. I'm afraid I can't do that. This is a recall, and you're listening to Tracks and Sci-Fi. Hello, everybody. This is Mark Daniels from the Great Pacific Northwest, and you are listening to Treks in Sci-Fi. This is episode 542 for Sunday, June 7th, 2015. I'm back this week with another classic science fiction movie. Today's movie is the granddaddy of all doomsday movies. Before there was Armageddon and Deep Impact, there was When Worlds Collide from 1951. It stars Richard Deere, Barbara Rush, Peter Hansen, and John Hoyt. Before I get into this week's podcast, I want to thank Rico for giving me this opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I also want to thank everyone who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoy it. With that said, I'm going to play the trailer to this movie. I'll be back after the trailer with some movie information, and then I'll get into the movie. When worlds collide. Written in the stars is a message of doom for this, our world. And now in the most shattering experience the screen has ever given you, Paramount tells what could happen within your lifetime when worlds collide. An astronomer checks and double checks his horrifying discovery. A distant star racing through space toward an inevitable collision with this planet. The United Nations meet in emergency session. All conflicts pale before this threat from another world. If you wait until the danger is visible to the naked eye, it will be too late to escape. High on a mountaintop, an army of scientists work desperately to build this giant rocket, this modern Noah's Ark, to carry a few picked survivors of our doomed civilization to a new life on another world, reaching the heights of self-sacrifice, the depths of the animal lust for survival as they fight to be among the few who can be saved. Let's take the ship away from them! Come on! Fighting among themselves, fighting against time, as doomsday is upon them. I think all you scientists are crackpots. Nothing is going to happen. When worlds collide, you'll see the most amazing, awe-inspiring scenes ever put on film. The forces of nature unleashed in all their terrifying force. Tremendous tidal waves smashing New York City. The molten fires from the bowels of the earth gushing out to consume our world. 
When Worlds Collide was released on November 22, 1952. It has a running time of 83 minutes. Rudolf Maté directed this movie. The producer of this movie was George Powell. Sidney Bohm wrote the screenplay to this movie. When Worlds Collide was based on a 1933 novel of the same name, written by Edwin Bulmer and Philip Wiley. Lee Stevens wrote and composed the music for this movie. And Paramount Pictures distributed this movie. Here's the cast. Richard Deere played David Randall. Larry Keating played Dr. Cole Hendren. Barbara Rush played Joyce Hendren. John Hoyt played Sidney Stanton. Peter Hansen played Dr. Tony Drake. Alden Chase plays Dr. Greg Fry. Hayden Rourke played Dr. Emery Benson. And if he looks familiar, it's because he's Dr. Bellows from I Dream of Genie. And last but not least, Frank Caddy played Harold Ferris, and he was Mr. Stanton's assistant. And if he looks familiar, it's because he's Mr. Druckers from Green Acres. Here's some background information on the stars of this movie. Richard Deere, he was an American stage film and television actor performing in both starring and supporting roles. He was born June 15, 1918 in Norristown, Pennsylvania. He made his first film appearances in Charlie Chan in Rio and Castle in the Desert. He typically appeared in World War II themed B films such as Man at Large, Commando Strike at Dawn, and Tonight We Raid Calais. Following the war, he played the other man opposite June Allison and Van Johnson in the comedy The Bride Goes Wild. Most people remember him for his leading role in today's movie. He passed away on May 8, 1992, at the age of 73. Next up, Barbara Russ. She is an American stage, film, and television actor. She was born January 4, 1927, in Denver, Colorado. She's a graduate of the University of California, Santa Barbara. She performed on the stage at the Pasadena Playhouse before signing with Paramount Pictures. In 1954, she won a Golden Globe Award for Most Promising Newcomer for her performance in It Came From Outer Space. She began working in television in the 1950s. She later became a regular performer on TV movies, miniseries, and a variety of other shows, including Peyton Place and the soap opera All My Children. Next up, Peter Hansen. He is an American film and television actor, best known for his role as lawyer Lee Baldwin on the soap opera General Hospital. He was born on December 5, 1921, in Oakland, California. He served as a pilot in the United States Marine Corps during World War II. He flew F-4U Corsairs and participated in the invasion of Peleliu in September 1944. Hansen has appeared in more than 100 movies, television series, and made-for-television movies. Some of those appearances include work on Broken Arrow, Richard Diamond, Private Detective, The Maverick, Petticoat Junction, Gomer Pyle, USMC, How the West Was Won, Magnum P.I., L.A. Law, Night Court, and Growing Pains. Last but not least, John Hoyt. He was an American stage, film, and television actor. He was born John MacArthur Hoysrat on October 5, 1905 in Bronxville, New York. 
He attended Yale University, where he served on the editorial board of the campus magazine, The Yale Record. Before becoming an actor with Orson Welles Mercury Theater, he worked as a history instructor, acting teacher, and even a nightclub comedian. He's been in hundreds of movies and television shows. Star Trek fans will remember him from the original Star Trek pilot, The Cage. He played Dr. Philip Boyce. He was also on the original Battlestar Galactica series. He was Sire Domra in the episode Boltar's Escape. He passed away September 15, 1991, at the age of 85. And that's all I have for movie information. Now let's get into the movie. The movie starts in an observatory in South Africa. Dr. Emery Bronson discovers a rogue star on a collision course with Earth. He hires pilot Dave Randall to take a black box with some photographic plates and all his calculations to Dr. Cole Hendren in New York. Hello, Randall. How are you, Stan? You must have been held up at Mount Kenna Field. We knew you arrived two hours ago. Oh, I had a friend's aunt for a passenger. Had to get the old lady home first. I'm Emery Bronson. Hello, Doctor. You've been well recommended to us, Mr. Randall. Oh, it shouldn't have taken much recommendation. I understand all you want is a package delivered. Did you bring your passport to the United States? Yes. But who gets delivery of what? Your recommendation said I could depend on a lack of curiosity. Look, Dr. Bronson, I don't care what you're doing or why. All I want to know is where do I go and how soon do I get paid? I didn't mean to be rude. It's just that secrecy is very important now. You'll fly your plane to Lisbon. Then take the transatlantic clipper to New York. The delivery will be made to Dr. Hendren at the Cosmos Observatory. Here are several poses of Dr. Hendren. The delivery must be made to him personally. Remember that. To Dr. Hendren only. Right. You'll require this for expenses. I'm supposed to get paid $1,500 plus the expenses. Hendron will pay you on delivery. Time is all that counts. The money doesn't matter at all. With me, Doctor, money always matters. Perhaps now. But the day may arrive when money won't mean anything. Not to you, nor anyone. When that happens to me, I'll be six feet under. When Dave arrives in New York, Dr. Hendren's daughter, Joyce, and a newspaper reporter meet him at the airport. The newspaper reporter offers him a check for $75,000 for information about the contents of the black box. Dave declines the offer and leaves the airport with Joyce. The two then grab a taxicab and head for the observatory where Dr. Hendren is working. During the ride to the observatory, Joyce alludes to Bronson's end-of-the-world discovery, arousing Dave's interest. They arrive at the observatory and are greeted by Joyce's fiancé, Dr. Tony Drake. Dr. Hendren opens the black box and gives Bronson's calculations to Joyce to have them checked by the digital analyzer. You know, the computers back in the 50s, big as a house. Dr. Hendren takes the photographic plates to a viewer to look at them. He then explains Bronson's discovery of a rogue star, Bellis, and the planet Zyra to Dave, Tony, and the Board of Trustees. Zyra is about the same size as our Earth. Both these bodies are coming into our solar system. If Brunson's readings are correct, they will destroy the Earth. How far away from us are they? 
The calculator will be precise. I would estimate about three billion miles. Billion? Well, that people start worrying a hundred years from now. Mr. Randall, you've been flying ships faster than sound for many years. These bodies are moving thousands of times faster. They can be upon us in less than one year. Now, I repeat, all this depends on Bronson's findings being correct. The planet Zyra will pass very close to us, close enough to influence the tides. Oceans will be torn from their depths. Tidal waves hundreds of feet high will sweep in from the coasts. There will be giant earthquakes. Handfuls of people may survive if provisions are made. We'll make them. Every possible effort. Whatever help my factories can give, we will give gladly. It will be useless. Soon after, Bellus will come into direct collision with the Earth. Our world will end. When Joyce returns from the digital analyzer, she has confirmation that Bellus and Zyre will collide with the Earth. Later that evening, Joyce, Tony, and Dave go out for dinner. Tony is called away to the hospital, leaving Joyce and Dave alone. Dave has had a few drinks and begins to flirt openly with Joyce. Dave wants to get to know Joyce a little better. The following day at the United Nations, Dr. Hendren and Dr. Bronson warn the delegates that the end of the world is a little more than eight months away and pleads for the construction of spaceship to transport a few survivors to the planet Zyra. However, an equally distinguished scientist scoffs at the prediction and dismisses Dr. Hendren as a crackpot. There is a possibility, a very remote one, that a few people may be saved. The world will be destroyed, but a few people will be saved? The world, our world, will come to an end on August 12th in slightly more than eight months. There is no margin for error in that, sir. <laughs> but we believe that the planet Zyra once contained living matter. We believe, and this is theory, not certainty, that some form of vegetation may still exist on Zyra. You are proposing that we all pack our trunks and move to... Uh, Zyra. Zyra? <laughs> no, sir. But we are hoping that, with God's help and guidance, a few people may do exactly that. A 20th century Noah's Ark, huh? <laughs> yes, one or more of them, as many as can be built in this short time. Eventually, as Zyra and Bella speed closer toward us, even a layman will be able to see the danger. Much as a train looms up in the distance, in an instant it is upon you. With enough funds, labor, and material, Dr. Fry believes that rocket ships can be built to fly to Zyra, which will be closest to us. But remember, eight months is very little time for construction. Only if work begins immediately can this be done. If you wait until the danger is visible to the naked eye, it will be too late to escape. Bellus and Zyra will be upon us and crush the earth. That is my Dr. Ottinger of the Astrobrook Observatory. Gentlemen. My colleagues, Dr. Felix Zenter, Professor of Astronomy at Cornwall University, and Dr. Jonathan Wilson, President of the International Planetary Research Institute, and I, have examined the photographs and data submitted by Drs. Hendron and Bronson. Our findings show there is no cause for alarm. No reason to spend billions of dollars to build spaceships which never will be needed. Suppose they were built. Do either of you believe that spaceships can fly to any planet? It is theoretically possible. I do believe in theories, Doctor. But when you tell me flying to another planet is a possibility, you're out of the realm of theory. You're in a dream world of the impossible. Even if the world were to end, would it be less unpleasant to die out in space than uh, here on firm ground? <laughs> the world will not end. 
Certainly these new bodies will pass our planet. Heavenly bodies frequently do. But we are still here. <laughs> Predicting the end of the world is an annual crackpot event in our society, an attempt to corner the newspaper headlines. But I did not expect a man of Dr. Hendren's background to join this headline hunting parade. Dr. Hendren receives help from two observatory board members, Glenn Spiro and Marston. They arrange a lease of an old proving ground site and provide funding to start construction of the spaceship. Later, Joyce confides in her father that Tony wants to marry her immediately, but she is having doubts as she is now attracted to Dave. Dr. Hendren promises to keep Dave around. Have you got a minute, Dad? Oh, I'm marking time. We have an appointment with Sidney Stanton. Is he going to give you the rest of the money you need? I hope so. He phoned for the appointment. Tony's outside. Well, I'm sure he didn't come to see me. He wants to marry me now. I don't blame him. Isn't marriage what you want, honey? Oh, I've liked Tony. More than any other man. I was always sure we would get married one of these days. Joyce, dear, there isn't time for uncertainty. You have to answer this question. Do you want to spend what time is left with Tony as his wife? I wish I could answer it. I suppose it really doesn't matter. And it is what Tony wants. Not what you want? I don't know that either. Oh, Dad. I'm so mixed up. I... I can't think straight. Do I know this subject of your confusion? Dave Randall. I, I don't know why, when or where, Dad. I've told myself I like being with him only because... He's someone new, someone different. Yes? Mr. Stanton is here. Tell Dr. Fry and send in Mr. Stanton. You told me to answer the question for you, Joyce, remember? Let Tony wait a while longer. And you? You give me two minutes after Stanton leaves to figure out a good excuse to keep Dave Randall right here. Oh, thanks, Dad. Soon after, Sidney Stanton arrives to see Dr. Hendren. Stanton is a self-centered, wheelchair-bound industrialist. He agrees to finance the construction of the spaceship, but only on his terms. Dr. Hendren, Mr. Stanton, this is Dr. Fry. Doctor of what? Dr. Fry is the dean of the Eastern School of Technology. All right, I'm in here safe and sound. Go outside and read the magazines. What about this Noah's Ark? Will it get to that new planet? In theory, on the calculation of some engineers, such a flight is possible. Two of your observatory trustees, Marston and Spiro, tell me that you have an equipped campsite, but you need money to finish building the ship. A great deal of money, millions. Amounts don't stagger me. I'm just weighing the percentages. Your word against the word of other astronomers, Wilson, Nottinger, Zenta, I've talked to them. They think you're a crackpot. I know. It'll mean liquidating some of my business interests. It may mean the salvation of a civilization. Their salvation doesn't interest me. Mine does. I'm no humanitarian like your friends Marston and Spiro. I just don't relish dying. What are the chances of existence on this new planet? We don't know. We can only hope they're good. Millions for theories. The end of the world is no theory to us, Mr. Stanton. If I thought it was, I wouldn't be here. All right, I'll pay for the rest of your arts. One thing. I select the people who'll go with us. This won't be a commercial liner. There may be space for 40 or 50 human beings, some machinery and livestock. The minimum needs to begin a new life. 
You're not qualified to select those people. Nevertheless, I reserve that privilege. Make up your mind. It is made up. You admit you don't relish dying. You're willing to put up this money as life insurance. The guarantee that if the world ends, you'll be among the few with a chance to reach this new world. That makes my proposition a simple one. Your money for your life. We'll do the picking together. Half and half. No. Why not? Why should you set yourself up as the only one to give life or take it away? The proposition still stands. Your money for your life. You know I can't refuse. Build it. With only eight months to go, the construction of the spaceship begins, and it's a race against time. 600 men and women will construct the spaceship, aware that only four of them will be selected randomly to make the trip to Zyra. During the construction of the spaceship, Stanton tries to get Dr. Hendrick to initiate security matters, anticipating the doomed workers will try to storm the ship, but Dr. Hendrick refuses. Bronson tells me Ottinger and the other doubting Thomases have jumped over to our side of the fence. That will put an end to the newspapers calling me a lunatic. Stanton's folly. With time running out on them, they'll wish they had a fleet of Stanton's follies. No. They admit our calculations on Zyra and Bellas are correct. But they insist our flight is an impossibility. Even in other countries where ships are being built, most scientists say the flight isn't possible. And you? I believe as I did before. In theory, it should work. Always theories. Jigsaw puzzles on paper. Aren't you fellows ever positive? Only about doomsday. A representative of the government will warn the people tomorrow. Provisions will be made to evacuate them to mountain locations. What provisions have you made to protect us when the panic starts? I haven't thought about it. I have. I don't deal in theories. I deal in realities. Ferris. Ferris! Yes, sir? Bring in those boxes. I brought enough rifles to stop a small army. There won't be any panic in this case. Stop theorizing. Once the havoc is over, every mother's son remaining alive will try to get here and climb aboard our ship. People are more civilized than that. They know only a handful can make the flight. You've spent too much time with the stars. You don't know anything about living. The law of the jungle. The human jungle. I do. I've spent my life at it. You don't know what your civilized people will do to cling to life. I do because I know I'd cling if I had to kill to do it. And so will you. We're the lucky ones. The handful with the chance to reach another world. And we'll use those guns. You'll use them, Doctor, to keep your only chance to stay alive. Dave believes that he is not vital to the operation and won't apply to go on the flight. When I was a kid, I read a book about the world coming to an end. I remember being so scared, I didn't dare go to sleep. And in the morning, the, the sun came out and everything looked so wonderful, I forgot the story. Life was beautiful all over again. The same sun will be shining on the new world. Look, uh, Star Casey, right? I don't figure in this new world. For the past couple of months, you and I have been telling recruits that the few who will make the trip will be needed in the new world. Scientists like you, your father, Tony, farmers and mechanics, you have things to offer, but you won't be needing aerial taxi drivers for another hundred years. Dad promised me that... Dad said we'd need you. Thanks. Thanks, but Noah would have turned down my application fast. But Dave... I'm not applying for this trip. Use a little arithmetic. The ship's cargo's limited. Every pound will count. Oh, I weigh as much as a couple of lambs, three dozen chickens, one healthy farmer. As Bellis and Zyra approach Earth, 
mass evacuations begin. When nothing happens at the appointed hour, Stanton believes that this has been a waste of time and money until the earthquake shakes the construction area. According to your figures, by now we were supposed to feel the effects of Zyra's passing. Tidal waves, oceans torn from their beds. Millions of dollars for a false alarm. Ottinger called you a crackpot. I think all you scientists are crackpots. Nothing is going to happen. A series of disasters rock the earth as Zyra passes. Although the construction site is shaken, the spaceship suffers little damage. During the earthquake caused by Zyra's passing, a falling crane kills Dr. Bronson. While searching for flood survivors, Dave and Tony rescue a little boy named Mike from a rooftop. During the rescue operation, Tony, who is jealous of Dave, considers abandoning Dave on the roof, but quickly changes his mind. The construction resumes at a desperate pace. On the 11th day before collision with Bellis, Dr. Hendren announces that Dave has a guaranteed place along with his assistant, Dr. Fry, Mr. Stanton, Tony, Joyce, the little boy Mike, and himself. Dr. Hendren asks the workers to pick numbers for the lottery, and the results will be posted the day before the collision. We cannot postpone the inevitable. This meeting was called to choose those who will make the attempt to reach Zyra. As most of you already know, our human cargo must be restricted to 7,000 pounds, 44 persons. Every pound consumes fuel, a commodity we cannot waste if the flight is to have any chance. About 900 pounds already have been spoken for. Mr. Stanton, Dr. Fry, my daughter, myself, Dr. Drake, and Mr. Randall. Unless there is some objection, we intend including another 40 pounds. Our latest addition to the camp. Now to again emphasize our fuel problem, most of it will be consumed in overcoming Earth's gravitational pull. But once this has been accomplished, engines will be turned off until we come into the gravitational pull of the new world. But then, in turning the ship completely around, every ounce of fuel will be needed to avoid crashing. Dr. Fry and I hope we have worked out a sound plan. For the sake of efficiency, it would be unwise for one man to know he is not to go but that the man working at his side is among the fortunate few. In this envelope is a list of numbers, the numbers of those who will go. In these boxes, we have placed numbered discs, the one on the left for the women, the other for the men. Each of you will select and keep one disc. This list will be posted on the dormitory bulletin boards shortly before the takeoff. Is this plan satisfactory? If there are no objections, please start the drawing. Dave refuses special treatment and pretends to take a number in the lottery. Hello, Dave. I've been looking for you. Not to quarrel about your sense of ethics, just to ask you why. I haven't any more right to a ride on that ship than any other man in this camp. I'll grant you that. I'll even admit my motive was a selfish one. I want to do things according to Hoyle, Dave, but, well, Joyce is pretty important to me. And to me. I'm glad. I'd do anything to ensure her chances, wouldn't you? It isn't a free ride for Joyce. She's... 
She's qualified to go. No more than some others. We're stretching the point because she's important to both of us. Well, why not for her sake stretch the point a bit farther to include you? Now. Now look, Doctor, I, I've wrestled with this thing for weeks. I, I can give you a dozen reasons why I shouldn't go. Can you give me one good reason to include me? She wants you, Dave. That'll change. Tony will be there. She, she's used to having him around. They would have been married if I hadn't come into the picture. Anyhow, why worry? Maybe I, maybe I drew a lucky number. You didn't take any number from that box? I had the exact number of discs in it. One for every man and woman except the six people I named. If you had taken a number, we would have been one short. Look, Doctor. The drawing is over. You can't open a new one or issue new numbers without starting a revolution among the lucky winners. It's about time I donated something to this setup. I won't be needed. I never have been. Anyhow, I didn't give up much by not drawing. What's, what's one chance in 600? Leaving me will save fuel. Let it stay that way. And Dr. Wright, I hope you won't say anything to Joyce. Good night. Tony invents a fake heart condition for Dr. Fry. He then tells Dave that he must go on the flight because Dr. Fry, who is the pilot of the ship, has a heart condition and will most likely incapacitate him during the flight. He convinces Dave that he must go on the flight, as he's the only other person who can fly the spaceship. Worried? No. Well, the ship is really put together. If anything can make it to the new world, this one will do it. Dave? Yeah. How long would it take to learn this flight panel board? Uh, a few weeks, maybe. But Dr. Fry knows the inside and outside of every knob in the panel. He can operate it almost in his sleep. I hope so. What'll happen when he blacks out? Everyone will black out in the fast climb. But the direction will be set. This will hold you on course. All the way to Zyra? No, but far enough. The blackout won't last too long. A few minutes tops. This is no time to start doubting the ship, Doc. I'm not. I, I know how well it's been put together. Trouble is, I just learned how Fry's put together. Mm hmm? His chance of coming out of the blackout isn't good. Well, I've seen older men make it. At the speed we'll climb? 1,500 miles in a few minutes? Well, his heart won't hold together. No, no coronary condition like his could stand that pressure. When did you discover that? Yesterday, when I made his cardiograph test. I haven't told anyone yet. Not well, even Fry. Well, don't. It won't help to scare everyone. Like Doomsday, that, that can't be avoided. We can't let Fry handle this flight. Look, Doc. Maybe... Maybe now. Dr. Hendren and Fry must be told I can't take that responsibility. That isn't what I wanted to say. Right, you'll uh, have to tell them, I guess. There's no other choice. Anything happens to Fry when we get out into space. Yeah. I don't suppose it makes any difference, crashing from 1,500 miles up or dying right here on Earth when Bella sits. Either way, you're just plain dead. 
After the blackout, one of the technology students, Eddie Cummings maybe, could take over if Fry tells him what to do. If Fry is able to tell him after the blackout. Dave, you're hedging. Why? We both know who else can handle this flight. Maybe not as good as Fry, but good enough. You haven't any doubts about being able to fly this ship, have you? No, I can fly her. Well, there isn't anyone else. Dave, you're our life insurance. If Fry doesn't make it, you'll be able to land the ship. For months, I've, I've tried to find a legitimate reason to go along. I never could. Maybe things were meant to happen this way. You diagnose it any way you want. All I know is I feel a lot easier not having to tell Fry the news about himself. With the spaceship completed, the winning lottery numbers are posted. One of the technicians finds out his girlfriend did not win a seat, so he decides not to go. Stanton insists that the seat remained vacant. Harold Ferris, Stanton's assistant, demands the seat at gunpoint. Now remember... If we delay the takeoff tomorrow as long as possible, the Zyra's position will form a perfect orbit with ours. I hope we can retain that extra fuel to keep us flying over Zyra while we look for landing room. Zyra will be about here in relation to Earth. If you can hold the ship to this curb, we will be able to meet her orbit and run on a parallel. The fuel will last much longer with less cargo. Why risk our necks by taking so many people? You and that chair weigh 186 pounds. That's worth a lot of fuel, Mr. Stanton. Would you like to donate that weight? No more than you want to donate your life or your daughter's. I paid for finishing this ship. Without me, you would have been wiped out with the rest of the world. Before you opened your pocketbook, you tried to make this a personal enterprise, a private rocket ship for your own special use. This project was started by real humanitarians, by Marston and Spiro. They gave their money with no strings attached. You're not here under any special license. You're always shouting for facts, not theories. Well, remember these facts. Our chance of reaching the new world is as thin as your chance of ever becoming a humanitarian. If we do make it, will there be a place to land? Will the air be fit to breathe? Will there be water, vegetable life? Men and women here have been praying for God's help and guidance. Not your kind of hypocritical praying, but the kind that comes from deep inside a man. I'm sorry. I'll come back later. No, no, Eddie. Come right in. We can't put things off till later. I just wanted to leave this for someone else to use. He has a girl. Julie Cummings. I guess he doesn't want to leave her. There's that extra fuel. He must weigh close to 180. You heard him volunteer to stay behind? Shut the door. You're not taking it from him. He turned it back of his own free will. Get out, Ferris. The other side of the door for you. Shut up. This is one of the good ones, isn't it? I'm sorry. The people have all been selected. I'm going too. Put that gun down. I'd almost rather kill you than go along. For seven years, ever since I started pushing this chair around, I've hated your insides. You're a very easy man to hate. I'd like to reason things out with you, Ferris. You see... Oh, you three are running things here. You're going to tell everybody I'm going. This is my number. That's all the reasoning I want to know. And if I don't go...
He was going to kill us. Better give it to me. I told you this would happen. And not just Ferris. There'll be others, all of them. They won't just sit still and wait to die here. He may be right. Well, this one's dead and there's been a lot of bad feeling. One boy was stabbed right after the list was posted. There's been a couple of fist fights. I told you, it's dog eat dog. The law of the jungle. I guess we can't risk his being right. What do we do now? Well, we can move the women on board, lock the ramp gates. The men can wait outside the ship until we take off. The guns are in my room, boxes of them. That's out. We'll have to move people and animals as quietly as possible. Oh, Dave, there's a girl, Julie Cummings. Tell her there's been a mix-up in the listing. She and Eddie Garson are going. We'll gamble on less flying time over the new world. Let me tell Don't you... Don't say it, Stanton. Don't say anything. As predicted by Stanton, some workers protest and form a mob. Fights break out, and Dr. Hendren instructs the passengers to board the spaceship as quickly as possible. And why should our lives be decided by a raffle? How do we know the drawing wasn't fixed? It should have been done by voting. Let's take the ship away from them. Hey, Mike. Gangway, boys. Here's the guns, old man Stanton. That's all we need. Let's go. Grab a gun. Wait, wait, fellas. There's no sense in this. We all agreed to the drawing. Listen to him. Listen. You can take the ship, sure. Then what? Only 40 of you can get away. Don't you see? Then the rest of us will get rid of that 40 and the next 40 until we kill each other or we all get caught when the worlds collide. Stick around till the collision puts you out of your misery. Come on! Moments before takeoff, Dr. Hendren, who's pushing Mr. Stanton, refuses to board the ship, sacrificing himself and Mr. Stanton. You are right, Mr. Stanton. You're a better judge of people than I am. Get me on board. The spaceship blasts off as the space travelers lose consciousness. Bellus collides with the Earth. Later, all the space travelers wake up, and Dave realizes that Tony lied about Dr. Fry's condition so that he and Joyce could be together. The spaceship makes a rough but safe landing on Zyra. Dave and Joyce disembark the spaceship, ready to begin life on a new world. And that's the end of the movie. Now it's time for some movie trivia. When Worlds Collide is one of the many classic movies mentioned in the opening theme of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. was first considered for the role of David Randall. Chesley Bonestell created the design for the spaceship. He was an artist of the 1940s and 50s that if you read one of those books, science fiction books from that era, the cover art he probably did it. So whenever you saw spaceships that looked like hood ornaments on 1950s cars and space stations were always wheels, looked like bicycle wheels in space, that was him. Or lunar landscapes or landscapes of Mars or different planets, that's his work. When Worlds Collide won the 1952 Academy Award for Special Effects and was nominated for Best Cinematography. If you look closely at the men in the mob scene, you can see a young Stuart Whitman in an uncredited role. 
Those that know me really well and my classmates at the Schlock Cinema in North Seattle College know that whenever I watch a movie, I try to find a Star Trek connection. And believe it or not, there is a Star Trek connection in this movie. In Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, there are two cargo containers in the Genesis Cave, and they can be seen labeled Bellus and Zyra. That's pretty cool. And that's all I have for trivia. Here are my comments about this movie. I watched the 2001 DVD release from Paramount Pictures. The picture and sound quality are great for a 64-year-old movie. The only bonus feature you get is a theatrical trailer. That's it. Nothing else. So, I really like this movie. It has a great story. The A story is classic. You got Bellis and Zyra, and they're going to collide with Earth. That's a great A story. The B story is good, too. It adds a little tension to it. The B story is the love triangle between Dave Randall, Joyce Hendren, and Tony Drake, which is a good story because Tony turns out to be a really good guy. And then there's a C story. And the C story is there's a couple of young technicians, Eddie and Judith. And when the day comes to pick the lottery, uh, Eddie says, oh, you pick them both. So she picks his and hers. He gets to go on the pl- on the flight. She picked a bad ticket. So that was very cool how he went up there and volunteered to give his uh, his ticket up so he could stay with Julie when the world collide. That was very cool. And uh, speaking of the cast, I think everybody in this movie did a great job. I mean, especially Larry Keaton and John uh, Hoyt. John Hoyt and Larry Keaton, those two together playing Hendred and Staten were great. They have some of the best lines in the entire movie. I love the scene where uh, Mr. Stanton says, I'll fund the ship, but I get to pick the people. And Dr. Hendren goes, no, you're not qualified to do that. This is the deal. You want to get on this ship, you got to pay your life for your money. That's it. And that's a great scene. And there's a couple other great scenes in the movie between those two. Um, Dave Randall, he played a great Playboy pilot. I mean, at the beginning of the movie, he's flying an airplane with a girl. and They're making out in the airplane. And the at the airport in New York, the newspaper guy comes up to him and goes, hey, here's a check for $7,500. And let me know what's in the box. And he takes a look at Joyce and goes, oh, no, I'm working on a better deal. So it's like, oh, I know what you're talking about. Um, Just a great movie. And you see how at the uh, at the end of the movie, uh, there's that scene where actually it's in the towards the end of the movie where Tony and Dave have to go deliver supplies to people after the uh after zyra passes and um they're gonna they're ready to fight but they get on the helicopter because they got to do the right thing and when he puts the little boy in the helicopter and he's like see ya sucker i was like oh but he came back so that just goes to show that tony his character is a really good guy um Special effects are great in this movie. You know, I love miniatures. Uh, There's a website online where I saw them putting together the miniatures for this movie, and there's a bunch of great pictures. I love practical effects. Um, CG's great, but man, to see models being made and that kind of stuff is awesome. And there's a lot of great matte paintings in this movie, too. Love matte paintings, except for the last one at the end of the movie on Zyra. That kind of looks like paint by numbers. But if you look closely at that picture, if you look off to the right in the horizon, you'll see two pyramids. And it's like, oh, maybe there's a society on or not a society, but a civilization on Zyra already. 
Um, the music is also great in this movie. It's done by Lee Stevens. And if this music sounds familiar, it's because he did the music for uh, War of the Worlds and Con- Conquest of Space. And, they, you know, some are, some producers, uh, music composers, excuse me, some music composers tend to leave leave hints in their other music. Because look at James Horner, the Rathacon, Aliens, Kroll, they all kind of sound the same. Um, overall, this is a great movie, and I would recommend it to all science fiction fans. If you haven't seen it, go buy it. It's really cheap. You can find it on Amazon for five bucks. You can probably find it at the bin in Walmart for five bucks. Believe me, you will not be disappointed. On a scale from one to ten, I'll give this movie a solid 10. And those are my comments about this movie. Before I wrap up this week's podcast, I want to thank Rico again for giving me another opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I also want to thank everyone who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoyed it. Rico will be back next week covering the Deep Space Nine episode, Destiny. I'll be back soon with another classic science fiction movie. Until then, everybody take care. This is M5 signing off. Trucks in Sunrise.